morning, ZPC. It is good to be here uh, with you all today. Before I begin, I want to uh, just kind of say thank you again for your uh, remarkable generosity uh, and the ways in which it helps us to further this mission. And as we build for God's kingdom, I was reminded of that yesterday. Jane included this in her prayer, but uh, yesterday was a pretty remarkable day for us here at ZPC on these grounds as you... Uh, on the one hand, you had about uh, 55, I think it is, uh, high school boys who are uh, going through, awakening kind of the spiritual retreat, and, uh, and so you can just kind of imagine what that's like. And, and, and at the same time then, in here, uh, we had this funeral for Don Armstrong, 86 years old uh, he was, and just what a remarkable guy. And, and so awakening kind of made some adjustments so that we could do that here and not have it be uh, raucous. Um, and it was just this great reminder of, of our call as a congregation, uh, which is to have, you know, everywhere from your 14-year-olds in this case all the way up to those in your 80s together under one roof, uh, uh, worshiping together, ministering together. Uh, and I understand it takes a lot of sacrifice for that to occur. Um, it would be easy for us just to only kind of, you know, have one segment or the other. Uh, but I want you to know as a pastor, um, it is a gift to be able to be a part of a congregation that says this is important important enough for us to be able to have all ages uh, because we believe that we get a display of the kingdom of God when we do so. So I just wanted to kind of let you all know uh, what a blessing uh, that was to me yesterday. Well, today we are continuing in our look, as you know, in the Gospel of Luke, seeing Jesus anew, and we are going to be looking at Luke chapter 6, uh, and this time verses 12 through 26. And so I invite you to hear these Words. Luke says this, Now during those days he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And he spent the night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose twelve of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter and his brother Andrew, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And everyone in the crowd was trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. 
God, we pray for your spirit to be with us this morning as we hear this word, these words which you, Christ, spoke to the disciples long ago and to us today. And I pray that the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. Now, if you've been with us over the last few months, you know that I'm going to begin at the very beginning of this particular passage, of course, uh, which is where it says, Now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. Once again, Jesus is going off on his own and is spending time uh, with his Father in prayer. I mean, hopefully by this point, we have really begun to see what it feels to me is kind of irrefutable evidence that what is absolutely critical is our creating space to get away and simply be still with God. I mean, when we think about the ministry of Jesus, if I had asked you, let's say a few months ago to, you know, hey, tell me more about the ministry of Jesus. What did that look like when he was here on earth? We would have, we would have, most of us, including myself, would have said, oh, well, there was miracles. Oh, and he was dealing with these Pharisees all the time. Oh, he was dealing with these disciples. But I wonder how many of us would have said yes, and he was spending ample amount of time simply getting away from it all. But hopefully by now, it's becoming very clear that this is absolutely critical to the ministry of Jesus and to who Jesus was. And I'm not going to spend any more time on it today because I've spent enough time on it, but I at least want to call your attention to it once more. If we are going to follow Christ, then we must create this space to simply be away. So Jesus is up on the mountain. He's listening, he's, he's spending this time, of course, with his father, and then he comes down and he, he calls the twelve. It's clear that, 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 that you have the time of prayer and then this new part of his mission where he begins to gather this important community of faith. He spends time with his father on the mountaintop, he feels the leading of his father, he comes down from the mountaintop and he picks these men to be his disciples. Let me say it in a different way, but pretty much exactly the same way. Jesus spends time with his father up on the mountaintop. He feels the leading of his father. He comes down from the mountaintop and he picks these men to be his disciples. He's spending this time up a whole night in prayer up on the mountaintop. And when he comes down, he chooses these Men, a group of guys who are always fighting with each other, a group of guys who like to argue with him, a group of guys who seem to always be slightly dense and never seem to be able to quite get exactly what Jesus is telling them, a group of guys who, when Jesus was in this most mournful of moments, they they fall asleep, they can't handle it, A, a group of guys who, when Jesus is on trial, all they do is run away from him, a group of guys, one of whom actually leads to his very death. He spends all this time in prayer before God, and this is as good as it gets. I mean, one thinks that perhaps he should have spent maybe, I don't know, two nights in prayer. In fact, I like what one commentator said, which is that, well, you know, maybe actually he was just praying for himself because he knew exactly what kind of group he was going to get. I think the 
this was just great. I've never really thought about all this scene all that well. Probably I just went immediately to what we're going to talk about here in just a few moments because that's a little bit more kind of ground, you know, shaking underneath our feet. But this is a beautiful part of this passage. A lot of times, you know, I meet with folks and I have this same feeling where you, you, you pray and you feel like, oh, I know exactly how the Lord is leading me. I feel really good. And then you, you go and all of a sudden it doesn't work out very well. And maybe the whole plan just kind of fails miserably. Or maybe you have all these rough times and you'll say, ah, man, it's weird. I really felt like this was what God had called me to do. But clearly that must not have been the case. But then you look at a passage like this and you're not like, no, I mean, just because you pray, just because you feel the Lord's leading, which very much could be the case, it does not mean that whatever journey you're then going to be on is nice and smooth and encouraging and exciting and easy and comfortable. It simply means that we spend this time with God so that God can be with us in the very midst of this journey that he sends us on, which is oftentimes not easy and comfortable. Keith Nichol, though, also makes this great point that I also don't think I would have noticed, which is that this is this remarkable example of the grace of Jesus. That Jesus knew, certainly the Father knew exactly what this was going to look like. He knew what these disciples were going to be, how fickle they were going to be, how, how they would deny him and betray him, all those things that I've already said. He knew all of these things, and yet he called them anyway. This is remarkable. He knew what they were going to be like. He knew how often they would fail him and deny him. And yet, he called them anyway. And I think this is really important for us, many of us, who, who at times we struggle and we think, surely there's no way that God would have called me. Surely not. We are oftentimes surprised by our own struggles. I can't believe I'm 48 years old. How do I still struggle with impatience and with getting angry? When I was, you know, 18, 19, I thought for sure when I, get old, when I got older, everything would just be smoother and I would basically be almost Jesus. <laughs> As you know, that hasn't happened. Thank you. Don't shake your head so emphatically, Claude. No. We are surprised at times. But you know who's not surprised? Jesus, he knew what he was getting when he called you. He knew your struggles. He knew how you would struggle and fail. He knew all of those things. And yet, he loves you so much that he said, no, 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 just keep coming. I think this is a remarkable uh, kind of example of grace that we need to be very mindful of, especially as we kind of get to the rest of this passage. So Jesus comes down, he calls those 12, and then he begins to heal, he begins to teach. Now this kind of next section, and uh, we'll continue uh, next week, is, is oftentimes called uh, the Sermon on the Plain, P-L-A-I-N. And it's in contrast to another sermon uh, that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7, which is called oftentimes the Sermon on the Mount. Man, impressive. 
And, and people are wondering, well, is this actually just the same? And maybe it is. Maybe it's the exact same sermon. Maybe Luke uh, shortens it to be sure and gives some other kind of peculiarities about it, perhaps. Um, I kind of think that it very easily could be different. I mean, you know, what they say about preachers, of course, is that, you know, preachers, we all have one sermon, right? And we just come up with about two or 300 different ways to preach the exact same sermon, and perhaps Jesus is just no normal preacher, to be sure, but you got to know that when he's going around to places, it's a lot of the same theme, right? I mean, Jesus is kind of preaching on these same themes of grace and love and care, all these kinds of things, right? So it's very likely that this is just a different one, but it's fascinating to see some of those differences, the similarities and the differences with the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus begins, according to Luke, with what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep, blessed are you. Where did it go? Blessed are you when people hate you. But now here's what's fascinating about this. It's a difference with Matthew. In Matthew, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but not Luke. Luke just says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. In other words, we can't just kind of spiritualize Luke's version. He's saying that materially, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. That's really important for us. I, I was reading an article. It kind of made its rounds around some ZPCers I know. It was in the Wall Street Journal back in December and it was just saying that we need to be mindful, we in the church, we need to be mindful of, of the massive shift that occurred uh, in Jesus' kingdom that happened 2,000 years ago. Because he says, when, when, when they begin to say, blessed are the poor, there was nobody that was saying, blessed are the poor in that time. In fact, as historians would tell us, you know, the Romans would have scoffed at that idea. Blessed are the poor? That when you look at the Greek gods and the, 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 the Roman gods, none of those gods were like saying, hey, blessed are the poor. They didn't care about the poor at all. Which is why it's remarkable that all of a sudden, you know, you've got this, this, this early church that's saying, okay, well, if Jesus is literally saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, we better be about the poor and the hungry. So that when we continue to think about this tapestry of the kingdom of God and we kind of, we kind of see and trace ourselves, this is really important because when we, um, you know, when we uh, build the food pantry as we're doing right now, one of the things that we wanted to be clear about is, A, we didn't want it to leave our particular campus because this is not an extracurricular activity. It's actually, you no know, just a part of the kingdom of God, right? It's also though why we wanted, it's great to have it a little bit separate as well because then people as they're driving, they see that this is, this is something that we are about. It's what the church is about. Or when we partner with uh, Team World Vision, uh, many of us have done that and we, for, for, for clean water in Africa, when we, when we engage in places like Africa and other places where there is poverty or when we do our shepherd totes in December for food for those on the east side who would not have it otherwise. This is engaging in what, uh, what is oftentimes called the upside down kingdom. And the upside-down kingdom is, is, is different than the kingdom of this world, right? Because in the upside-down kingdom, you have the poor who all of a sudden now are, are up here. They are the ones who are esteemed and loved. They are the ones whom we serve and care for. It is this upside-down kingdom. But you know where this goes, 
Because if it's an upside down kingdom, which means that the poor are now shifted over and they're now at the top. Well, then those who are at the top, those with wealth and power, where are they now? Man, you guys knew Sermon on the Mount, but you couldn't figure this out. <laughs> or maybe you know exactly what I'm saying. All of a sudden then, those with wealth, those with power, are on the bottom. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. I have a sneaking suspicion that we preachers, this one included, much prefer uh, Matthew's. Matthew's Sermon on the Mount is woe-less. There are no woes. Matthew's, again, as I already said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because we preachers, we want to get the paycheck on the next payday. And when you see something like this, you sit there staring at it all week and you say, what am I supposed to do with this? Matthew, where have you gone? We long to domesticate this part of Jesus' sermon. And perhaps it is at this point that we begin to understand the Pharisees a bit more. Pharisees, last week, maybe you recall, if you were here, we talked about they were upset with Jesus as he kind of, you know, played what they considered to be kind of fast and loose with the Sabbath, and they didn't like that. And as we said, they were feeling threatened. Their identity was threatened. Sabbath gave them a sense of who they were, how they were different. It gave them a sense of understanding who God is, the world around them. It, it gave them a sense of identity. And whenever your identity begins to be questioned, whenever your sense of worth begins to be questioned, you become furious. Well, you know what else gives us a sense of identity? You know where else we oftentimes find our security, our understanding of the world around us? Well, the truth, of course, is that we oftentimes find that in wealth. And I know because I've preached on it before. I know that when we start talking about wealth, we can get very furious. Actually, usually the way we just become very defensive. And I get it. There was a part of me this week that just kind of wanted to read a couple of Jesus' lines. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. And I just wanted to sit down, and I wanted either for us just to be still and feel the weight, or I wanted Scott to stand up and then begin to preach. I don't know about you, but there is an enormous pressure after reading lines like that to quickly insert, yeah, but. 
or sure, but what you also need to understand is what is Jesus doing here? I mean, is Jesus is he just trying to make us feel guilty for the money that we have? Well, I do have some good news to you, which is I don't think that Jesus is actually trying to make us feel guilty. I, I don't think Jesus has that kind of time. I, I don't think he really cares about trying to make us feel guilty in any way. I, I, I don't. This is the good news. I don't think Jesus here is trying to make us, the wealthy, feel guilty. I know. I think actually all he's trying to do is save our souls from death. The image that came to my mind this week is a bit like, um, you know, when we have small children. Uh, I've done this with all of my little children. We've talked about this. I think, you know, when, uh, when you're at a grocery store and you're in the car and you're about to go out uh, uh, into the store and all of a sudden, you know, one of your kids begins to run across the parking lot. There are a few things that's scary. And you quickly grab them. But do you remember what you, you, you don't say, no, sweetheart. If you run out in the parking lot, you're going to disappoint me. Daddy's going to be sad. Do you want daddy to be sad? No. That just conjures that, well, you know, I don't want to feel guilty. I guess I, maybe I should, you know, do what he wants me to do. No. You say. What are you thinking? Do you want to die? Do you know? And then you begin to go into graphic detail about everything that is going to happen. I mean, you want to scare the pants off of them. Why? Because you love them desperately. And the last thing you want is for anything to separate you from them. You see, I think here what Jesus, Jesus loves us passionately. And he is saying to you, not oh, woe to you. He's saying, woe to you who are rich. Wake up. I love you too much to just kind of say, oh, well, just be careful when you begin to get wealthy. No. He is wanting to startle you with this image of what will happen to you if you just lackadaisically walk across the parking lot of wealth. Which is that your soul will be crushed. And if we are not aware of it, then woe to us. Now, I understand that those of us who know the New Testament will want to point out, yes, but are there not places where we see in the New Testament those who are wealthy and who give in remarkable ways and who help further the kingdom of God? Yes, you would be right. But this morning, if we are going to understand this particular passage, 
as deeply as I think the Spirit would want us to hear it. I think we need to simply stop right here and just understand how desperately the Lord loves you and how he loves you so much that he does not want your soul to wither at the hands of wealth. There are many ways, I suppose, that wealth can begin to corrode our souls. We don't have time to go into all of those, so let me just focus on one this morning. Julie Canlis, in this great little book, I would encourage you to read it if you want to, called A Theology of the Ordinary. She has this great point. She's not the first one to have made it, but she does a good job of it, which is that we were not created to be God. We were created to be God's creation, which means we were very expressly created with explicit limitations. These limitations are actually an incredible gift for those who have the eyes to see because it means that we do not have to be God. And when you begin to try to be God, it is a vacuous place to be. But since the very beginning of time with Adam and Eve, you can go all the way back, you can begin to see that we have always fought what feels to us like the suffocations of limitations. We do not want to be limited. We want to be able to do anything we can do. And if you don't believe it, then just try to tell someone that they are limited. And you should see, right, I mean, the blowback you receive. We do not want to be limited at all. But do you know one of the greatest ways to decrease the amount of limitations in your life? Money. Have you ever thought about it like that? Money decreases your limitation like nothing else. When you go to a parking, when you go to a, uh, what do they call these? A uh, car, where do you buy a car? What's that? Uh, a dealership, car lot. When you go and you have $10,000, it's like you're buying this car, sir. But if you have $200,000, it can all be yours. We like that. Where are we going to eat tonight, honey? If it's your first year on the job, Taco Bell. If it's not, and you've developed some wealth anywhere you want, no limitations. Where should we go on vacation? French Lick. I love French Lick. <laughs> but once you have some wealth, you can go anywhere. Have you thought about it? Now you can even go to space. You don't even have to be smart enough to go to astronaut school. Who are you to tell me I can't go up to space? There's the money. Now you can go anywhere. The law. 
You can't get out of everything, but if you have enough money to buy the best of attorneys, it's amazing how long you can stay out of jail. You can have any physical body you want with enough money. The lips you desire, the hair you've been missing for many years, the stomach you hope for. The more money you have, the more attention you receive, the more needs you have met, the more services will be rendered to you. Money dramatically decreases any limitations you will feel, which means it will make you feel more and more like a God. Now, I hear you. The first thing that most of us want to do is say, well, you know what, I, just, I mean, wealthy? I wouldn't consider myself wealthy. But I'm going to suggest that at least 99% of us here are wealthy. I really think it's 100%, but I'm going to say 99. Because I think if you look at us, first of all, in the scope of the world, we are definitely wealthy. And yes, all of us can find somebody who has a little bit more than what we do. That's no problem. You can easily do that, I suppose. But it feels to me like it's wasting time to try to kind of dissect, well, are we actually wealthy? It's a bit like when I have these arguments with my children, you know, where I've actually literally seen them do something wrong, and yet we spend an hour fighting over whether or not they actually did something wrong. And you say, why am I wasting all this energy? Quit defending yourself. You just are. It's okay, just admit it, and then we can move forward. Woe to us if we do not know our wealth and if we are not aware of the way in which it will corrode our souls. It keeps us from understanding just how human we actually are. Part of the reason why it does that is because it keeps us from feeling like we need to be in relationship, including relationship with God. I mean, one of the things about the poor, of course, is that the poor are radically dependent. They're radically dependent on others. They know they cannot do it themselves. The more wealth we have, and it's a part of the reason why we enjoy wealth, myself included, is it means I, I don't have to be. I can be more independent. I mean, I might preach different sermons if I was independently wealthy. I might preach different ones after today, depending on how this goes. You see, those limitations, though, are a part of our being not God, Canlis says, being not God. And they were intended to keep us close in our relationship with God. I like... Uh, I like the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. I, I, I feel like God is very direct with them. He says, he says this, So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I am about to, the version I always like, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's for another slide, sorry. 
These words are harsh. Jesus, the scripture is oftentimes harsh when it comes to wealth. But I want you to remember that the reason he is so harsh is because he loves you so much that he wants to awaken you. And wealth is so subtle and the way that it changes us is so subtle that we will oftentimes miss the way in which our soul is being changed. So what do we do? Well, you want to know the easiest thing to do, of course. Just sell everything you have. I mean, that's, that's the easiest thing, right? I mean, you don't wrestle with wealth if you have none. Perhaps you would say, that's great. You go first, which is, I think, a good response. As I was thinking about that, I was reminded of what Paul says about being single or being married. Remember this, he says, you know, I think it's better to be single for the kingdom of God. But I know that many of you, perhaps most of you, cannot be single you cannot handle that, and so then go ahead and get married. And so I would suggest in some ways perhaps that's what we see here. You know what? If you really want the easiest way, just, just sell everything you have. Give it away. I mean, that's, but, but perhaps not all of us are called to that. So then what else might we do? I think one of the most important things we do, quite frankly, is you, um, you surround yourself with people who are wrestling with wealth. One of the things that happens is when you begin to surround yourself in a community with people who are just wealthy, we've said this before, all of a sudden, everything becomes normative to you, right? Wealth becomes normative to you. You think this is just what we do. This is just what everyone does, and it is not what everyone does. And so there's two things that you can do about that. One is, I would say this pretty emphatically, the more money you have, the more important it is that you engage with the poor and the suffering and those whose limitations are monumental. Almost a direct correlation. The more wealth that you have, the more unlimited you are on this earth, the more you need to be with those who have massive limitations. Secondly, I would encourage you to get to know people here. I, I know people, one of the great gifts of serving a community like this, a community of faith like this, is that there are people who have wealth who will wrestle with it daily and who are being able to figure out how do we do this and not kill our soul? How do we engage? How do we have this wealth and use it in such a way that it does not destroy us? And I am more than happy, if this is wealth that you have and you want to know, I am more than happy to connect you with some of those people because they are a gift. I think another thing that we do if you have wealth, when we have wealth, is to intentionally limit yourself. I mean, some of us have enough wealth that we can just hire out almost everything. And so perhaps you spend a season when you do not hire something out that you really don't want to do. 
Maybe for the next summer, maybe you just mow your own lawn. Whatever it may be, it could be lots of different things. Or maybe you spend a year just kind of fasting different things that, that, that people without limitations can't, right? Maybe you just, you stop ordering things online. You stop, you know, uh, eating in particular places or going to particular places. Maybe you just spend some time just really intentionally doing this. I'm here to tell you, every day, wealth will begin to corrupt. It is a daily practice to fight it. Now, I'm going to take one moment because I kind of feel like once you're already kind of stepping on pretty dicey land, you might as well just keep going. Which means let me talk about parenting for a second. I think every generation, I think when you're older you forget about this, but every generation when you're young wrestles with something and oftentimes it changes. I would suggest one of the things that perhaps this generation, the younger generation, and I am including my own kind of generation, my children, is with a sense of limitlessness. I've said before, I don't know that it's actually a gift to say you can do anything you want, you can be anything you want, you can go anywhere you want. There are no limitations. We think it's a gift. It sounds like a gift. I actually think it's a cross to bear that is too much for any one to be able to do. The problem is, of course, we do this. It comes out of a great place. We love our children and we have the means. We will do whatever we can to make sure that they succeed. We will put whatever money we have to do that. And what we do is we set them up because we are telling them, not explicitly, but we are telling them, little Susie Q, Johnny, you're a god. There is nothing you can't do. And it's a lie. Doesn't mean that we don't love them and support them, of course. And I don't know where the line is. This is not, I'm not get legalistic about it, but I do at least want us to say woe to us if we are not aware of how we may be setting up our children. The last way that I want to bring up feeds directly into the table. One of the things that we get to do when we gather around the table is that we get to break the bread, which reminds us of the way that Christ was broken for us. Eugene Peterson says this. He says, all too often we come to the table with our best manners and a smug pose of impenetrable self-sufficiency. We are all surface, all role, polished and poised performers in the game of life. But the Jesus who saves us needs access to what is within us. And so exposes our insides, our inadequacies, our cover-ups. At the table we are not permitted to be self-enclosed. We are not permitted to be self-sufficient. When you come to the table and we remember the brokenness of Christ, we remember our own brokenness, we are invited to come down and to break those facades, to break the notion that we have no limitations, to break the yoke of wealth and to begin to see our own poverty, to begin to see our own need 
for one another and most importantly for God. Jesus loves you far too much to allow your soul to be corroded by the wealth that we have. And when you come together and when you offer up ourselves, then Christ is able to come into the very midst of all that we have and to begin to transform it in such a way that it brings not death, but remarkable life and hope as we enter into this upside-down kingdom of God. And so may we bring all that we have and offer it to the one who gives new life. Amen? So let me remind you that Jesus is the host at this table. This morning, even those who doubt or whose trust may be wavering, those who think, I can't believe I'm still wrestling with this thing or that thing. I can't believe, as we said earlier, that, 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 that I'm still struggling, that I'm still broken. They can come to this table because it is not a surprise to Jesus. He invites you to come to take and eat. That in so doing, you may know how desperately he loves you. With that, let us pray. God, on this day, we come together after a message that is not easy to preach or to hear but I pray that we come this morning, Lord, out of the abundant knowledge of your love and your grace for us. May we bring all of the facade that we have, all of the sense of our own limitlessness, that it might be broken by you who loves us passionately. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.